Okay, so I want to welcome everyone uh, here this evening. Um, my name is Peter Trubowitz. I teach in the International Relations Department uh, and am the director of the U.S. Center uh, here at the LSE, which is sponsoring uh, tonight's roundtable on the 2018 midterm election. So anyone stay up last night to watch the returns? <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. I know our team here at the U.S. Center did, along with colleagues in the Latin American Center and the Institute for um, Global Affairs. They live blogged it until, I don't know, like 5 a.m. Um, I was asleep. But it's a testimony, really, I think, to international interest in the U.S., and to our staff's dedication and stamina. Um, and they're back tonight. They are live blogging it, and this is being live streamed to uh, LSE chapters across the United States. Well, a lot happened yesterday, and for once, the pollsters pretty much got it right. Um, Democrats were predicted to win the House and pick up governorships. Where's the clicker? I know we have this stuff up, but I don't see a, I don't see the slides. Um, no, there's no, here we go. There we go. I think all these are right, although the Democrats have now just in the last couple of hours picked up another state, another governorship. Um, Republicans were expected to increase their hold on the Senate, and they did, although there are still two states that are outstanding. It turns out Montana is not. That um, tester looks like he's going to win and be a thorn and continue to be a thorn in Donald Trump's side, but uh, Florida and Arizona right now are too close to call. Um, the top line breakdown by age and gender is pretty much um, what we've come to expect. I think one of the things that's pretty dramatic, though, in this particular midterm election is the turnout of young people finally voted in a midterm. And so they did. And then there's the, um, the breakdown in, um, in race and ethnicity also pretty much tracks um, uh, other um, uh, recent um, elections. There were no huge surprises in that sense. Um, it may be surprising looking at it, but in terms of kind of how these voting blocks and groups have, um, have voted in the past, it's not dramatically different. Of course, there's a lot happening underneath these top lines. Huge turnout for a midterm. The realignment, I think this is a lot of people are going to call it this, a realignment of suburban voters into the Democratic column. Uh, typically in the Republican column, doesn't look like that anymore. Um, and um, a huge increase in women elected to the House, including an LSE alum. Oh. Nikki Sherrill, who won New Jersey's 11th congressional district. Um, there's also the small question, of course, of what does it all mean for America, for the world. Unfortunately, we have a terrific panel here tonight uh, to help us kind of get leverage on these questions, these and, and related uh, questions. Um, 
I'm starting with um, Dr. Leslie Vinjamori here, the head of the U.S. and Americas program at, uh, at Chatham House uh, and a reader in international relations uh, just up the road at SOAS. Uh, next to uh, Leslie is Gideon Rackman, who's the chief foreign affairs commentator for the Financial Times. Um, and to Gideon's left is uh, Dr. Linda Yu, uh, a visiting senior fellow at LSE Ideas, so right here, and a fellow in economics at Oxford University. And last but not least is David Smith, a senior lecturer in American politics at the University of Sydney and a British Academy fellow here at the U.S. Center. So. The game plan for tonight is really straightforward, simple. For the first half hour or so, I'm going to put questions to, the, to our panelists. We're going to try to get a discussion going, and then we're going to open it up to your questions. And what I'll do is I'll take questions, I'll try to group them in three, uh, and ask the panelists to pick one of those questions, each one of them to pick a question that they want to respond to. And we'll keep going like that until we get close to um, uh, 8 p.m., and then I'll perhaps give them uh, just kind of where, depending on where we are and so forth an opportunity to provide a closing um, thought about the election. So, sound like a plan? Not that you have much choice, but that sounds like a plan. So, um, so anyway, for those of you on, on Twitter, you already know the suggested hashtag. If you haven't already put your phones on um, silent, please do that, and we will get started. So, uh, so that's the first question is, it, it's just a softball. It's, um, so what's the big takeaway? <laughs> a softball. Uh, first of all, thank you for having me. It's great to it's great to be here. Before I say what my big takeaway is, I just I want to call out one of I had so many favorite races. I had some that I were less favorite, but I wanted to call out one of mine, which is Tom Malinowski elected in New Jersey uh, to Congress, first time running for office, and he was one of the very first people that I interviewed for my PhD research on human rights and conflict. He spent most of his career in human rights and uh, was fired up by Trump, went into politics and, and had a very successful race. So great race. Um, in terms of the takeaways, uh, a couple of things. First of all, you know, there, there are some things that we've been hearing a lot um, for the last weeks and months and um, probably over the course of many midterm elections, but we certainly heard it in this one and I think it's borne out to be true. First, that this was really, um, for at least according to exit polls, two-thirds of the electorate, uh, of the voting electorate, um, a referendum on the president. So the results can be read in many ways, but I think the first way to read them is that this was what people thought about Donald Trump, even though he wasn't on the ballot. Uh, and so I think that's very significant, and we should keep that context in mind. And of course, in each particular race, it mattered uh, how people positioned themselves relative to the president in the context of their state and a number of other things that we can talk about. Um, but the, I guess the, the bigger take-home for me is about division in America. And we have watched this division, we have heard about this division on multiple dimensions over the course of the past two years. And, and certainly previous, uh, prior to this, we talked about Black Lives Matter and a lot of division under <laughs> President Obama, to be fair. Um, but what we've seen during the course of these midterm elections is that division stoked, and of course during the last two years, that division, uh, which has a basis certainly in American society um, today along a number of dimensions, whether it's racial, whether it's rural versus urban, 
um, many other dimensions that we could call out. It's been mobilized and stoked, and we saw that in a very graphic way, in, especially in the last few weeks of the election around the politics of immigration and fear. Um, but what we didn't see for the first two years of Donald Trump's presidency was division in the institutions that mattered for governance. In other words, in state legislatures, in governorships, in Congress, or in the White House. We had really very serious one-party control in effect. Um, and that's fundamentally changed. So that division that has been across American society is now actually embedded in the institutions of governance. So I think that's very significant. And regardless what I think many people are saying, which is, oh, does it really matter? He was never really doing much through Congress anyway, with the major exception of tax cuts. I think the story of division embedded in Congress is actually a much, much more significant one. Um, and then finally, I guess I would say that, um, that this matters a lot for 2020, and, but it also matters a lot for how the rest of the world thinks about 2020. And I think it matters a lot for Europe and it matters a lot for the UK because now when people look back and they go back to that question that's been asked on and on for the last two years, which is, is this passing? Was Trump's election and his policies and his politics, were they a product of a series of idiosyncratic factors or do they represent something structural and enduring in America, and therefore we need to recalibrate our response? Now that question is very much uncertain again, because now it's not clear what will happen in 2020, which means that there is an argument to be made to wait it out, to stay the course, to kick the can down the road in terms of having a more uh, aggressive or assertive response to the United States. So I think a lot of the questions that we've been talking about are very much up for grabs and in play once again now. Great. Um, Gideon, what's the big takeaway for you? Well, I mean, picking up really from where Leslie left off on the global aspect, I mean, you talked a lot about the divisions in America, but I think one of the interesting things is that Trump has now almost created a sort of global division as well, because a lot of people's politics uh, around the world are obviously heavily influenced by what they see happening in the United States, the world's sole superpower. And it's certainly possible sitting you know, in London and in a university to assume that the whole world detests this guy and they're all hoping that he loses. But actually, the kind of nationalist populism that Trump represents now has quite a few similar governments around the world. So just you know, a couple of weeks ago, we saw Bolsonaro elected in Brazil, uh, Latin America's largest country, and saying you know, he very much took Trump as a reference and an inspiration, was going to align closely with Trump's America. Even here in Europe, we think of the EU as well, you know, very uh, threatened by Trump, and as an institution it is. But within the EU, you have uh, Poland, uh, which has a kind of special relationship with Trump. He gave his first speech in Europe in Warsaw. You have Hungary, obviously, Orban very closely, particularly on this issue of migration and Muslim migration. There, there's a lot of uh, interplay there. The Italian government, I think, looks to Trump. Uh, and then beyond Europe, well, actually, uh, you, you should also remember Russia, obviously, within Europe, um, where I think the Russians haven't given up on Trump and uh, are kind of <laughs> vaguely hoping that he can still deliver his side of the bargain, whatever it was. Um, and, um, and then in the Middle East, you have both uh, Israel and Saudi Arabia very much in the Trump, Trumposphere. 
so um, there's a substantial part of the world which has already adjusted or sort of moved towards Trump, but uh, there's also a substantial part of the world which is waiting for that old America to come back, um, and that would include the European Union uh, as an institution, um, Canada, Japan probably, although they've tried to build a special relationship with Trump there pretty uncomfortable with it. And then the countries that Trump is in direct confrontation with, such as China, Iran. So um, he's kind of created an interesting new division in the world. And as Leslie said, I think people will be scratching their heads because they can't figure out now, well, is he going to win in 2020 or or, or not? Um, So they'll sort of be biding their time. But I think one element, and one doesn't want to over-exaggerated, but I think there are structural things that will persist beyond Trump, so that the Democrats were moving in a protectionist direction themselves. Uh, You know, Sanders was very against the TPP and managed to force Hillary Clinton to repudiate it, even though she'd actually negotiated it, which was quite something. Um, And um, similarly, you know, the the, the complaints about low European defence spending were made by Bob Gates at NATO when he was Obama's defense secretary. And I think probably most significant of all, uh, there's been a sort of bipartisan souring on China. I don't think that the Democrats would have, would have pursued it in as confrontational a way as Trump, but these freedom of navigation operations that Trump has stepped up in the South China Sea began under Obama. Um, and people like Kurt Campbell, who was Obama's Asia secretary, have written in foreign affairs that, you know, we've got our China policy wrong and we need to be tougher. A lot of great issues in both of these answers. That's stuff that we need to pursue. Uh, But I want to give both Linda and and David uh, an opportunity to take a bite at the apple here. Linda. Thank you, Peter. Um, I suppose there are probably um, a couple of takeaways that I would stress. Um, One is, um, you saw from the charts, there was higher turnout and new people running for Congress. There have been a number of firsts made in this Congress from record number of women, it looks like, who are going to be um, the new representatives and people of color. So I think what trend this is picking up, it is, as Leslie has said, it is a, uh, it's a reaction to President Trump. So the question is, um, are we moving away from the kind of divisive rhetoric which uh, the president has deployed, and some of that obviously has fed into um, the energy you see in people wanting to uh, become politicians. Um, But I think also the way they ran was different. So, um, for instance, um, a number of the candidates stressed reconciliation, that reasonable people can disagree on an issue. And that kind of shift is certainly to watch going into 2020. I'm not suggesting, by the way, that this shift will necessarily carry the day. I'm thinking in particular of two losses of races, um, which had candidates which embodied this way of campaigning. Beto O'Rourke running for Senate in Texas, Ben Jealous running for governor in Maryland. Both of them lost. Close, but they both lost. But does it herald um, Americans moving towards a different kind of engagement with politics, both rhetorically and in terms of activism? And of course, that matters for 2020. Uh, Donald Trump Jr. tweeted this afternoon, 
getting ready for 2020. You know, President Trump has already copyrighted um, his slogan for his re-election run. He copyrighted it, I think, the day after um, he won in 2016. And um, the slogan is, keep America great, exclamation point. <laughs> so I think 2020, absolutely, what we should be watching for. The second big thing I would take away from this is many of you will remember the last two years of President Obama's presidency. And that was a presidency in which he was working with a Congress which was very much against his agenda. So um, the fact that the House has gone to the Democrats means that on a lot of areas of domestic policy, you have a Republican-controlled Senate, a democratically-controlled House, um, they are going to clash, maybe not on all issues, but certainly on a number of issues. And um, the kind of resistance that President Obama faced, I would imagine, would be magnified for President Trump. So what does that mean for policy in America, specifically um, my area, economic policy? I think it, it's, it's going to matter a lot <laughs> because um, when a president cannot further a legislative agenda, the president tends to revert back to executive powers, powers that reside in the executive branch. Now, those powers are centered on foreign policy and trade policy and immigration. So the president has a lot of leeway, for instance, um, to pull out of trade deals. He can't agree trade deals. Those have to be passed by the Congress, but he can pull out of them. Immigration, we already know about, and Gideon's touched on a number of complexities around foreign policy. But a president who's hamstrung at, in terms of domestic policy and is running for re-election is probably going to double down on the policies that he can say he'll take credit for. And foreign economic policy directly affects domestic economic policy. So what he does on the trade front will affect American consumers, American workers, American jobs, American businesses. So that I see as the next couple of years, how um, this Congress is going to um, change or perhaps strengthen President Trump's um, focus, which is already squarely on these issues anyways. And the exit polls showed the two issues the Republicans and Democrats both focused on was immigration and the economy. There was one difference, Peter, mm -hmm. as my final thought. Mm -hmm. Apparently, uh, Democrats, not Republicans, cared about Russian interference in the 2016 election. <laughs> so there were partisan divisions. Still. That's great. So I want to circle back in a second to this governability question that I think you've just, you've just framed for us and, you know, what the possibilities are. But, but David, let's hear from you. Yeah, so for me, one of the biggest takeaways is that for the first time in a long time, Democrats are actually acting like a political party. Um, LAUGHTER during the Obama years, essentially you had this immensely popular figurehead and what the Democrats essentially became was a national popular vote winning machine in which every other race was neglected. And if you look particularly at the state level, during the Obama years, Republicans gained over 900 state house seats during that time. Now those are incredibly consequential 
As we've seen from races like Georgia, when you control a state government, you control the electoral machinery. Um, I believe this is a terrible system. Like all Australians, I'm insufferably smug about how great Australia's electoral system is. And I think that the United States desperately needs centralised administration of elections. But while it doesn't have that, um, actually controlling state government is incredibly important. Uh, last night, Democrats gained 333 state house votes. Actually, that's the total if you take into account uh, special elections that, that happened around that as well. Now, that is a start, right? This actually shows that for the first time in a long time, Democrats have become serious about becoming competitive at the state level and also competitive at the congressional level too. We saw during the years 2008 to 2016 the same something, a replay of what we saw from 1992 to 2000, which is that Republicans uh, lost presidential elections by large margins but took over every other branch of government. Democrats are going to have to do something like that uh, if they're going to counter Trump. Last night was not a thunderous victory for the Democratic Party by any means. They didn't make gains of the kind of size that the Republican Party was able to make in 2010, despite having you know, a, a bigger popular vote. But as we saw from 2016, even the popular vote isn't enough anymore. Democrats essentially have to be able to win in a lot of different places. And you know, last night we saw House seats being flipped in Oklahoma, for example. Uh, one of the brightest people that I knew in my PhD program a few years ago left academia to go and work for the Democratic Party in Montana. Another one of my good friends uh, from uh, my PhD program went to run uh, in a Democratic primary in a seat which the Democrats had no hope of winning at all in rural Illinois. The number of Democrats who actually went in to compete in seats which they had no realistic chance of winning but made them into competitions... This is the sort of thing that the Republican Party did during the Obama years, did during the Bill Clinton years, and ended up being the foundation of their power at the national level. Democrats have learnt some lessons from that. And um, last night showed the sort of first signs of the revival of a body which had looked dead for a long time. That's, you know, that uh, David's comment reminded me of Will Rogers' old crack that... Um uh, he said, I, I don't belong to uh, a party. I belong to the, I'm, I'm uh, a Democrat. Uh, I don't belong to an organized party. I'm a Democrat. Um, so um, let me pick up on one of the, what, really a point, I think, Linda, that you raised. But um, I mean, what are the possibilities if we kind of look at it? So look, the Democrats now have the speaker's gavel. And and it's going to be in the hands of somebody who is battle-tested, tough. Nancy Pelosi is going to be the speaker. And um, the rubber stamp is gone. Um, and Donald Trump is going to be, you know, is going to be dealing with somebody who knows the ropes. And I, I guess the question is, is it is it just gridlock or are there places that these two parties can actually find common ground where it's in Donald Trump's interest and the Democrats' interest to cut a deal. Um, I mean, Gideon, you kind of hinted at it over trade because you essentially, I mean, 
the way I read what you were saying is, well, the Democrats, uh, Donald Trump has appropriated some of the Democrats' position on, on trade. Or, I mean, there's the question of China and whether they could find common ground there. So I don't know. I mean, we, I've just opened it up and let, does somebody want to like run with that? Where, where's the, where's that cross-hatched area in the Venn diagram, um, you know, where they can, where they can find some common ground? I'll say a couple things, quick things about that, and then turn it over to the experts. Um, I mean, I think a couple, one thing is, you know, it does depend in the short term on how badly Donald Trump takes the results, especially in the House. And if you watched his, his press conference that he gave tonight, well, at around 4.30 London time, um, it was a victory speech. It wasn't a sort of speech of unity. Mm-hmm. There was a moment, actually. A, it was quite a long way in. You had to stay with him. Um, and it wasn't very long, but it, but it actually was there. If you'd only watched that part, you would have heard a president speaking, um, where he actually did say, you know, we are going to work across House, the Republicans and Senate and House. And, you know, there was a moment there. But I think the, the question really comes down to, does he take it well or does he immediately sort of go on yeah. the offensive? And, do, and, and, and how, to what extent does the House um, drill down on the question of investigations, which of course would push everything, would have a spillover effect, I think, into this question of whether you can have progress on economic policy, on trade in particular, or on infrastructure, one of the big ticket um, items that has bipartisan support. Mm. Anyone else on this? Um, I think trade is an area that they might be able to do something. I know one area they won't be able to do anything, which is Obamacare, um, the Affordable Care Act. I think that, um, I mean, putting together that package has been a long-cherished Democratic Party aim. And so I don't think this Congress is going to take a second bite at it. Um, I think that's, you know, I think that issue. um, But I think on trade, um, Republicans are the free trade party. (laughs) And so um, Democrats traditionally... Um, but I say traditionally because obviously a lot of the, 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 uh, the deeper trade deals done over the past couple of decades were actually under President Clinton. Um, you know, NAFTA, which is now NAFTA 0.8. No, 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 U.S. Uh, MCA now. <laughs> um, the, um, so I think on trade, because there's such a big economic impact um, from it, um, in, in a different, in, in a number of ways. So, for instance, affecting supply chain decisions of American companies. Um, certainly, the cost to um, American production um, and um, the issue around, um, you know, uh, cost of uh, you know consumption prices for American consumers. There's a lot of reasons to try and find common ground. But the common ground, I think, as Gideon has suggested is not the common ground that um, necessarily, uh, that common ground is not necessarily too far from where President Trump has positioned the issue. In other words, the discussions around a level playing field, the discussions around intellectual property, the discussions around um, getting more out of trade deals, I think that kind of sentiment is not going to be too foreign to the Democrats. Um, And I think that might be um, an area. But um, 
whether or not the Democratic leadership can work with President Trump, because remember, trade um, is really an executive function in that sense, as in the, the kind of the face-to-face -face element. That, I'm not sure, because the, uh, the trade advisors that President Trump has, people like Peter Navarro, um, it's not, or even Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary, they are, they're outsiders to the process. I'm not sure how much familiarity they would have with congressional leadership to really, you know, it's a kind of, it's the relationship I'm not clear on. So Mike Pence, the Vice President, has very good relations with the Hill, but Mike Pence generally does domestic mm -hmm. type of policy. So mm -hmm. I think, yes, in theory, they might come up with something on trade, and it might be something that's, you know, uh, a little bit farther to the, I don't know which direction this is, right, left, I get very, uh, <laughs> but, you know, the direction of, you know, the, the kind of we need, we need a more level playing field, especially with countries like China. I think they might find some common ground there. Um, but I just don't know if the personalities around the president on this issue will be able to work with the personalities um, in the Democratic Party okay. in the House. Get in. Do you want to? Yeah, I mean, just a couple of points. I mean, I, th I think... Certainly, they are pushing, or important figures on both sides are pushing in the same direction on trade. So one of the few positive things I can remember Chuck Schumer saying about uh, Trump was when he introduced uh, trade sanctions on China, um, or tariffs. So the potential is there. Um, it's hard to think on, on, on other issues there. Though. I mean, I think, you know, when I first started kind of going to America and following American politics in the mid-80s, early 90s, it was kind of boring how everybody would say, pay tribute to bipartisanship and say, of course, I want to work in a bipartisan way. And it was the motherhood and apple pie. But they stopped even saying that now. <laughs> that, that's no, like, you know, partisanship is so intense now that it's perfectly fine to not even bother paying lip service to that. And I, I fear that the combination of the ideological division, the sort of bitterness on both sides, and the fact that they are both going to be driven to appeal to their base um, means it's going to be really pretty hard to find, to get beyond sort of trench warfare in the next couple of years. I, just, I will be fascinated to see if infrastructure gets revived as an area of bipartisan cooperation. This was talked about a lot at the start of the Trump presidency and then it just disappeared. Um, in the midst of everything else. Now, anyone who's spent any time in an American airport knows that this is a real issue. Um, it, it's one that Trump is genuinely passionate about. Um, I don't know if you remember him during the Republican primaries who would say these things like, you know, I've been to China, I've seen the bridges there, makes our bridges look like trinkets. Um, now, Democrats, you know, a lot of the, like Bernie Sanders, I think, said he would be interested in cooperating with uh, Trump on infrastructure. It could happen, given that it's been well established now that nobody cares about the debt or deficit unless a Democrat is president. Um, <laughs> I'll be interested, as I say, I, I think this actually would be a sort of fairly obvious area of bipartisan cooperation. I will be interested to see if it gets revived. Okay, good, mm. good. Um, so there's a lot of chatter today about impeachment. Um, so when you kind of think about the Mueller investigation, the possibilities of impeachment, um, you know, um, I mean, wh where do you think this goes? I mean, do you think, do the Democrats 
drill down that way? Do they make that kind of move, or do they adopt a different strategy, subpoena, using subpoena powers, um, you know, uh, invoke basically the Republican rule that was implemented under Obama? A chairman can now subpoena. You don't need the committee to vote anymore. Um, and so now all of these chairmen can basically and subpoena. Do they go down that path? Um, or is this just something that the Democrats are not going to touch this because they remember what happened to the Republicans ultimately mm. over the Clinton impeachment? Somebody want to run with that? David. I think uh, Democratic leaders have already made enough noises uh, this year, including Adam Schiff and Nancy Pelosi, to suggest that actually they're not going to. I think Adam Schiff even said he wouldn't move forward with impeachment if it would look like they were trying to... Um, essentially overthrow a democratically elected right. president. I think, first of all, there's very little point when you know that um, there's no way the Senate would ever, con ever convict. Second, remember that impeachment actually has to be over a, cr like a crime or a misdemeanour that's happened while the president's in office. The vast majority of the focus of the Mueller case is about things that happened beforehand. Um, third, I think the Democrats will find it a lot more politically profitable just to try to embarrass him as much as possible with this subpoena power, um, getting into his tax returns and things like that. I would suggest that that is going to be the strategy. They might, uh, uh, they probably won't come right out and say, we won't impeach you. They might sort of try to, you know, pretend that that's still something they could hold in reserve, but I would be very surprised if we actually saw an attempt. Leslie? Uh, I just have a quick one-liner, and this is, we, we don't, I don't think we know, because we don't know what Mueller's going to come yeah, up so. with. So, you know, obstruction of justice, quite possibly, but we couldn't begin to answer that question, because based on what's in the public domain right now, I think the answer is clearly no. Um, but things have gone very quiet during the midterm elections. Mueller's playing by the rules. He's very intelligent. He's very... Um, Judicious, he's yeah. you know he's a professional. Yeah, uh, so we don't know what's coming at us. And I think what's in the Mueller report, but also how Trump reacts to it, because I think mm -hmm. the Democrats will try to be restrained. They can see it's a dead end and it could backfire. But if Trump so say fires Mueller or uh, it really gets out of hand, they might then start be so tempted that they get going anyway. I mean, I guess uh, my quick two cents on this is that. Um, if Trump were to say something under oath, uh, remember, do you remember Bill Clinton's impeachment? Oh, yeah. It depends on what the definition of yes is. 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 is, is, is. is. Yeah, it was even better than that. Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> the, uh, so I think, uh, so yes, we, we don't know, but I think the question will be, um, even if he will not be removed from office, because you need two-thirds of the Senate um, to vote in favor of it, um, President Clinton was impeached by the House. Um, would, would the House Democrats go so far, depending on the outcome of the investigation, mm -hmm. to impeach him even though he wouldn't be removed from office? That, I think, um, would be actually more of a political judgment. It depends on what comes out. Mm -hmm. But I just think that's why they would continue to, to dangle it. And if you remember the star... Right. Um, can star investigation into Clinton. They will bury you on paperwork. Sure. Um, that will also take a lot of energy away from the president doing other things. So those are all things we absolutely have to watch. Right. Uh, just, just one thing I think worth looking at is, is the tax return issue, because I'm sure they will try to get at the tax returns. Trump will probably refuse to issue them. It might end up in a Supreme 
court case on which Kavanaugh could be the deciding vote. He was right. I think it was Newt Gingrich said yeah. that, uh, and then we'll see whether or not it was worth it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the tax returns came up in his remarks today. He said, "Why would anybody turn over their tax returns when they're under investigation?" <laughs> <laughs> That's the mob boss in here. Yeah. <laughs> so look, I think what we'll do is we'll open it up to uh, to questions. Um, so what I would ask you to do is, uh, when I call on you, to just briefly introduce yourself. And uh, keep your question uh, crisp, short, to the point, so that we can get in as many people as possible. So hands. Do I have hands? How about in the black shirt all the way in the back there? Gustav. (laughs) I just realized who it was. Um, Hi, I'm Gustav. I'm with the R department. I have a question on, I guess it touches on bipartisanship. Um, Thinking ahead to 2020, and since I'm a sort of a half-glass-empty kind of guy, um, to what extent has a Democratic win in the House, not the Senate, given President Trump, since he's not really that kind of a policy guy, a good excuse to blame whatever's going wrong in the next two years on democratic resistance, so which then actually reduces the chances of whoever's going to go against him to win in 2020. Okay. So this is turning the Democrats into a foil. Uh, Great question. Where are women? Um, There we go. Right there. Thank you. Hi, I'm Sadie Bassett. I'm from the International Development Department. Um, so I think you touched on it uh, briefly, but my question is, what are your thoughts on the Brett Kavanaugh hearing and the impact it had on the elections? Okay, so Kavanaugh and the election. And there was a hand right down here in the front. This gentleman with the blue scarf. Uh, Mark uh, Mark Hoffman from the International Relations Department. I wanted to pick up on comments that Leslie and David made about the parties. Um, so one of the interesting things about what's happened with the Republican Party is moderates left because they didn't stand or they lost in the recent election. So the, the Republican Party looks, it's a Trump Republican Party now. I'm not convinced by David's argument that the Democratic Party has come together as a party. It's certainly better than it looked, <laughs> but I'm curious in terms of reading off the election, what, the, what you think the Democratic Party looks like in terms of policies and things going forward mm. towards 2020 and what the impact is of a Trumpian Republican Party for 2020. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we've got three great questions here. Uh, one is Democrats as a foil. The other is Democrats as a party. Um, and then Kavanaugh and the impact on, on the vote. To what extent was, did the hearings ultimately matter? Um, uh, if I could ask each one of you to pick one of those questions and jump. Anybody want to take Democrats as a foil? Can I actually take the Democrats as a party question? Yeah, and I hope I wasn't sort of overstating. Uh, but as I said, it's a body that's showing signs of life. Um, it's not going and rampaging through cities yet. <laughs> I think that um, one of the... So in terms of, you know, what can maybe what can the Democrats actually be... A very interesting sign of this last night was if you look at the ballot initiatives and amendments that got up, we had Florida, even while um, it was electing a Republican governor, 
voting to re-enfranchise 1.5 million felons. This is Florida, a state where in 40 million votes cast in presidential elections since 2000, including 2000, the cumulative margin between Republicans and Democrats is 184,000. So all of a sudden, enfranchising 1.4 million people, you had three deep red states, uh, Idaho, Nebraska and Utah, voting for Medicaid expansion. You had Missouri voting to raise the minimum wage even as it voted a Democratic senator out. Take away from all of this, Democratic policies are more popular than Democrats. And if you were a Democratic strategist, one of the things, and you really cared about policy outcomes, not just getting your people into office, one of the things you would really be focused on is getting these kinds of ballot measures on the state, you know, in the states everywhere, especially as they relate to voting rights, which have been so eroded uh, in many places. That's great. Leslie? Yeah, I guess I'm not sure who it's a response to, but I feel like I need to respond. Um, I, I wonder if you overstate by, by attacking the Democratic Party, um, which, I, which I tend to think is an over-attack, um, but you've, you've looked at it more carefully than I have, um, whether you're perhaps overstating the successes in terms of you know, mobilizing the vote of the Republicans. Because as we know from the 2016 election, a lot of the Republican success came down to what was it, $5.6 billion of free media time and the very active engagement of the National Rifle Association and the evangelical organizations in getting out the vote in the rural areas of America, which is not the Republican Party, actually. It's close to the Republican Party, but it's not the Republican Party. So I think we should be careful about saying that the Democrats are doing nothing, because actually I got a phone call yesterday in my office saying, or Monday, whenever the vote was, Tuesday, saying, have you voted? I think they've been, done a lot, actually, in this particular election, um, at least you know what I've seen. Um, but I guess I, I, I want to come to the Kavanaugh question, because I think it's a really important one. And my sense is that it did quite a lot. I don't have the data right now, but it, my read on it was that it mobilized both sides, because the Republicans understood how important it was to hold the Senate. And the Democrats, and especially the women, understood um, how toxic this, pol- this kind of politics were and how much they wanted to gain control. And so I think it drove votes uh, on, both de- on both sides. But in the last weeks, other issues seemed to take over, which was interesting. And there's, there was a settling in and a, and a kind of acceptance at some level of, of Kavanaugh. Gideon. Yeah, I'm... David, did you say there were 1.4 million felons in Florida alone? That's yeah. an astonishing figure. Look, it's uh, a weird they place. didn't give the vote to felons. They gave the vote to felons who have been released, who are, who are ex-felons. Right? Okay. They've done their time. Oh, so there's, not, not so there's another million in jail. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, Mass incarceration is, is possibly a bipartisan yeah, issue. That small-time drug realize. offenses and yeah. stealing right. alligators. And, and but, disproportionately yeah. <laughs> African-American. Sure, yeah. sure. That's the disenfranchisement. Yeah. Um, so the but just, that turn out will probably be just on the on the on the the questions, uh, yeah. I mean, I think that potentially, you know, just in pure rhetorical terms, losing the house could be quite useful to Trump because the economy is probably sort of peaked now. Mm-hmm. And you may have a stock market crash in the next year or so. So perfect for him in two years' time to say, look, we were the Dow was at record highs. We were growing at four percent, and then, you know, so he has somebody to blame in a couple of years' time. Um, on the uh, Kavanaugh thing, I, I was looking at the numbers I was looking at before showed this. I think there was a gender gap of something like uh, 20%. Um, 
so I think, we, as in women, were 20% more likely to, to vote for Trump, uh, vote for um, um, the Democrats. Uh, so obviously it was a mobilizing issue, but I think that it, it probably, the emergence of gender as a big split in populism is, I think, possibly under-examined. You know, we've tended to talk a lot of, about the drivers of populism being economic inequality and race, but I think that one of the things that Kavanaugh showed mm-hmm. and that the rhetoric that Trump used after that showed that there's, um, when people talk about angry white men, it's not just the white bit, it's, it's the male bit as well is important. I think that uh, just as a lot of women were outraged by what they saw in the Kavanaugh hearing, a lot of men were as well. So that they used this thing to say, look, it's outrageous, this guy, you know, it's unproven, etc., etc. Anybody could be at risk. So there's a lot of that rhetoric as well. It's a, and it's, um, I think it's a split uh, that's going to last a while, actually. Yeah. Because maybe it's just the kind of thing that happens when you have rapid social change. Some people feel really threatened by it. But uh, the Republicans are, are using it. Um, and for the Democrats, I think that they've got a sort of unresolved issue they've got to address quickly over the next two years, which is do they go with a progressive wing, uh, the kind of um, identity politics, uh, or do they say, no, no, the only time we win is when we elect a sort of centrist, moderate? Um, and that, that argument, I think, is going to be really important. Just quickly, on the Trumpian Republican Mm -hmm. Party, I think the results suggest that the moderate Republicans um, ranks have shrunk a bit. So the Republicans who are now in Congress are probably more closely aligned with the 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 less moderate wing of the party. So I think that is certainly something um, to watch. And um, I think on Gustav's question of the 2020 election, I think yes. That might be why President Trump spent his presser talking about the fact that he won. Um, He was talking about his great victory. And do you know what was trending on Google um, this afternoon? Um, While President Trump was saying, "Ah, you know, we won, we won, it's a great victory, Google uh, Google Trends showed the number one question being asked was, is Trump a Democrat? (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Let's take another round of questions. Um, How about this gentleman in the T-shirt right there? I'll get around. I'm coming around. Yeah. Talking about uh, 2020, just wondered, did you see any uh, Democratic candidate who either won or lost that you think is a potential presidential candidate in two years' time? He lost in Texas. Um, yes. So, uh, how about um, this gentleman right here? Yeah. Yeah. My question is also related to 2020. So, uh, Republicans look like they did quite well in crucial presidential states like Florida, Ohio, and maybe Arizona and Georgia. So, where do the Democrats need to make the most breakthrough in the next two years? Okay. One more. Woman way in the back there, I think. Yes. Um, So it kind of goes hand in hand with the first question, but how do we feel about the propensity of the American public and the American media to associate Democrats in particular with a potential run? So the Kamala Harris, Cory Booker ticket or the... uh, O'Rourke, Gillum ticket that's also been floated. 
So we've got a couple of questions about the future of the Democratic Party. You want to run with that, Linda? Um, I, I'll take a crack at the 2020 presidential um, mm-hmm. candidates, only because I think this is just um, really everybody is fun, being, yeah. It's fun, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, so um, I think the real challenge is going to be um, almost reconciling um, the Democratic Party to the kind of party it needs to be, which is already being suggested. But as Peter says, Beto O'Rourke, a congressman, three-time congressman, El Paso, Texas, lost in his uh, race against Ted Cruz, um, speaks Spanish, is very uh, conciliatory in terms of language, has attracted a lot of national attention. I think he's certainly one to watch. I think Kamala Harris has been mentioned a few times. She's now got some time in the Senate under her belt. That is certainly going to help. Andrew Gillum lost Florida. He's got a little free time, so maybe, you know, there's, a, you know, there's, a, there's something to be uh, said. And I'm going to throw in one more, and I'm biased because he's my former student, is um, uh, Pete Buttigieg. So... Um, He's the mayor of a town in Indiana. <laughs> so, uh, so this is um, the reason I'm, about, well, I'm biased because he's my former student. Um, but the New York Times had an op-ed about him um, that said he could be America's first gay president. And it's because he ran for the leadership of the DNC. So he lost to, obviously, Tom Perez, who then quickly appointed Keith Ellison. Keith Ellison has just won his race to be attorney general of a state. So, you know, so in that kind of national uh, race, um, Pete, I think, rose a bit in prominence. The reason I like to mention him is that this is, you know, he is um, a mayor of a small town, his own hometown, um, in a traditionally Republican state. So there are people that are not on the national radar who may actually be coming through the ranks of the, of the Democratic Party. And I just wouldn't be surprised if you see them spouting up. But the word of warning I want to issue about 2020 is that 2020 will be hard um, for Democrats, um, not necessarily kind of the national presidential race, but hard as in the current patterns that you see will be challenging for them because there will not be redistricting until after the 2020 census. And gerrymandered uh, districts are one of the reasons why it's actually statistically quite challenging for Democrats. Uh, they have to do very well, basically, to, to really win. So, but that could change after uh, 2020, um, obviously, with the s- movements in the states, there could be, uh, you know, you know, gerrymandering the kind of um, states that get carved, you know, where, like in Virginia, I think it's the 5th District, the district goes from Washington, D.C., and then snakes all the way to North Carolina, and right. you think, who in their right mind would draw a district this way? Well, they were not in their right mind. It's a gerrymandered district. Exactly. So I, every, I can see all the panelists want in on this question of... Uh, of a Democratic hopeful. Um, you had your well, I mean, I'll just add one name that I, I, I hear, I continue to hear, is, is quite possibly, quite likely, may well, certainly weighing it up, is Michael Bloomberg, of course, um, what, to put his name <clears throat> in the race. And um, he considered the last time. I think he's considering it much more seriously this time. And I imagine, but I obviously don't have any, any information that... Um, that that anybody else doesn't have, but I imagine that he would be as a Democrat. But I just wanted to say one general thing about this too, which is that you know really a lot of this isn't necessarily. I mean, a it's you know people voting against. If it's if we're talking at the presidential level, it could just be about people voting against the president or for the president again, as opposed to who the other person is. Not that it doesn't matter. And B, it's about getting out the vote. It's about voter turnout, and huge strides were made in 
on Tuesday on getting out the vote. It's tremendous. I mean, the, the, some of these races that the Democrats lost were phenomenally close. And that's a really that is one of the biggest stories. And if that if that if the Democrats learn, despite the fact that they're not functioning as a party, they got out the vote. Um, if they continue to do that, uh, then then I think that it could be very it could be very significantly Democratic outcome in 2020. Before we go to another round of questions, Gideon. Yeah, I mean, I think one way of thinking of it is if you think of the sort of possible candidates in in baskets. So. One would be literally the over 70s. There's a lot of people who've been around a long time who are still thinking running. So I was just scribbling down the list. Bernie Sanders, Mm -hmm. Joe Biden, Biden. uh, Elizabeth Warren is 71 now, Bloomberg you mentioned, Hillary Clinton. John Kerry obviously wants to run again. So that's six of them, you know. Um, And uh, then then the, the second basket would be the kind of rising stars, the new politicians, but who are conventional politicians. And we heard some of the names... Harris and Amy Klobuchar would, would be others, Cory Booker and so on. And they would be a kind of conventional choice. Um, and then, you know, in the age of Trump, you've got to consider the idea that there will be some non-politician kind of celebrity superstar come in. And Oprah, Oprah. Oprah, Oprah is the name. That, <laughs> and uh, she makes a point of denying her intention of running every week, which makes me a bit suspicious. So... Um, <laughs> Uh, and then I think there, there is this broader question of, which makes me worry a bit for the Democrats, is that I still, they haven't, they've got a sort of Corbyn-Blair argument unresolved within the party. Do they go with, you know, their version would be Clinton-Sanders, but which side do they go for? Do they decide that they're going to go for, uh, this is a new age, an age of, uh, well, of, of left-wing politics, um, and go for a kind of Corbyn, American Corbyn, or do they go for a, an American Blair? Right. Yeah. Um, I'm, I might be the odd panellist out in um, actually not enjoying speculating about <laughs> primary candidates. It's actually my idea of hell. Um, <laughs> so I'm actually going... I will have a slight stab at it. First, I'm going to answer that question. Um, yeah, one of the things that last night showed was that Trump does have a particularly enduring power in Ohio and Florida, and that is going to be incredibly important for him in 2020. The, what the brightest spot for Democrats was that they won a lot of races in Pennsylvania, Michigan and sure. Wisconsin, which were the three states that essentially handed it to Trump um, last time around. In another version of hell, there are already people putting together those red and blue maps sure. uh, that show it could easily be 268 to 268 uh, based on Democrats picking up those three and, uh, and Republicans hanging on to Florida and Ohio. Um, <laughs> Just we've got to remember with the uh, with the 2016 primaries, one of Trump's huge advantages was name recognition. Um, we just you just cannot overstate how important it was that people knew who he was. And whereas to most voters, everyone he was competing against, no matter how excited people professionally involved in political commentary might have found someone like Marco Rubio or John Kasich, so the average voter, they were interchangeable suits, senators or governors from somewhere. We can talk about these very exciting democratic prospects who most of the country has never actually heard of, uh, despite their you know, brief prominence last night. Who have people heard of? It's Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. Um, there was a poll recently done uh, which 
to my mind, was basically just a proxy for name recognition about who people would vote for. Biden was on 33%. Sanders was on 22%. They were the only ones in, uh, in double digits. I think we have to take that kind of dynamic uh, into account, but I'm, I'm stopping speculating. So, so two... I, I want to speculate. So two, <laughs> two, two quick points. Um, one is I, I think there's a very good chance that the, the candidate is somebody we're, we're not thinking about. It's, um, it's an outsider. It's uh, somebody with executive experience. Um, somebody like Eric Garcetti, the mayor of Los Angeles, a Hispanic Italian Jew that hits the identity uh, <laughs> button, um, got reelected overwhelmingly in Los Angeles. Um, uh, you know, a, a mayor's platform is kind of narrow to make a bid for the presidency, but I think it's, it's thinking about somebody who has kind of demonstrated competence in the political sphere but is not in Washington. In being inside Washington, I think, is, is inherently problematic for, ironically, for challenging Trump. But I just wanted to say something, too, about well, I, I thought Gideon's point about... <clears throat> The Corbin-Blair tension is really an important one because to the extent that the Democratic Party does move in, let's say, the Corbin direction, that's music to Donald Trump's ears because the easiest path for Trump to get reelected is to have the Democratic Party move further to the left and somebody get in to try to win in the middle and you divide the vote up. Um, because he can, it seems, he can pretty much count on 35, 40, 40%. That seems to be his number. It doesn't matter like what he does, whether it's good or it's bad, he just kind of like stays right there. So, you know, I mean, there, there are some people, this is kind of the Bannon scenario, that the, the goal is to polarize the electorate as much as possible, to bring in, to create the possibilities of a third party candidate so that Trump wins with a plurality and not much of a plurality. So one needs to be kind of – so that's an issue, I think, that you've really put your fingers on there. Um, let's, uh, let's take a bunch of other questions. We'll go all the way to the back there. Uh, yeah. So, yes, okay, I'll take you. Wait, you've got to wait for the mic. Uh, hi, I'm a student uh, of politics and economics at the LSE. Um, my question is regard to, to the uh, gender and uh, populism part of the discussion. Uh, in 2016, the uh, white women actually voted for Trump. Um, I don't know if there's any statistics, statistics pointing to that um, white female vote shifting to Democrat in this race. Mm -hmm. And if there is, why is there a latent reaction from white women against uh, Trump for his personal characteristics, uh, and if there isn't, wh wh why is that? There is, and so, okay, we'll hold that question, and then we'll come up here, uh, right here, the guy in the striped shirt, there. I'll come up. 
Thank you very much. My name is Duncan Bartlett. I edit a, a magazine called Asian Affairs. I had a question about the US-China trade war. Right. I wondered whether you felt it had been an aspect which had been discussed in the uh, campaigns of the midterms and how it affect voters' decisions and what's likely to be the next stage of the US-China trade war if uh, there is a shift in the um, political environment in the United States. Great, thank you. And then there was a hand right over here. Uh, wait for a mic, okay? Um, it's coming right there. I'm Vinay Singh. I'm part of the executive course at LSC. I just wanted to know, what is the American contribution towards this hype of immigration and the emergence of right parties in big countries like India, Brazil? And what do you see, what will the policy America will be creating, being a superpower and influence the world? Is it the right way, what, what's going on around with the emergence of immigration? Europe now, South America coming all into U.S.? Okay, so we've got, um, we've got uh, three questions here, Trump and women, um, China, the trade war, where do we head, um, and uh, America's contribution, I think if I understood the question there, to populism. And actually, you know, I maybe flip that around a little bit or just put this other kind of tweak on it. So America just voted to check Donald Trump. So... How does that play, like in Europe, like in countries where there's populist leaders and so forth, make a difference? If they're trying to model American behavior, um, does it matter or is it irrelevant? I, I don't think the check is, is sufficiently decisive to, to mean that people like uh, Salvini in Italy would say, oh, well, our guy's lost, you know, we're giving up. I think they're still going to look to him. Uh, but I do think that what you were touching on, this question of the change in the way you can discuss immigration, the way you can discuss Muslims, frankly, uh, has been affected by, by Trump. I mean, I think the one striking thing about world politics is the way in which hostility to Muslims has become something that's really identifiable across... Uh, a number of major powers. So you have what's going on in China where there's this mass re-education, inverted commas, in Xinjiang, you know, mass incarceration. In, in India, obviously, the BJP is a Hindu nationalist party, which is, last time I looked, trying to strip the citizenship from four million people in Assam on the grounds they're illegal migrants. Um, in Europe, obviously, uh, the major thing that set populism alight was the, the million people... Uh, moving into Germany, and that's the issue for Orban and for, for the Italians and so on. Um, and I think that Trump has sort of given permission to right. toughen the language, toughen the behavior on that kind of thing. So there's no American check, in a sense? No. That. I mean, you used to have uh, the Americans and the EU sort of trying to enforce human rights standards, even if frequently hypocritically and partially, but there was a sense that there's, there is the, this body of behavior and, and law out there that you had to follow. And now you have an American president saying, well, look, our asylum laws are ridiculous, and quite a lot of European politicians as well. So the, um, and I think that is permissive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I think, though, we have to be careful 
um, about what we attribute to Trump. I mean, Modi was there before Trump, Netanyahu was there before Trump, Orban was there before Trump, Xi Jinping was there before Trump. They all make Trump look like amateurs when it comes to Islamophobia. I mean, China literally putting them in re-education camps. Um, That's... You know, that's that's anti-Muslim politics on a scale that we don't even see Mm -hmm. um, uh, among the worst uh, kind of demagogues in the West. I also think um, Trump is quite a different kind of populist from a lot of these other populists, where the sort of standard staple of populist rhetoric is it's the elites versus the people. You can sometimes read that into Trump, but if you look at what he actually says, he's more like, I'm an elite who's better than all the other elites... Um, I'm I'm smarter. I'm rich. As he he told an audience um, at a rally in Florida, America's Queensland. Um, <laughs> you know, he, he said he was actually puzzled by his by his. Uh, you meet these people called the elites. They're not the elites. We've got better houses, bigger boats. Uh, you know, we're smarter. We're richer. He actually doesn't buy into that classic. Um, elite people divide, even if it is what a lot of his uh, supporters follow. So I think that we, while I think there's ways in which he definitely is a populist, I think that for those of us who research populism, I think more and more now we're looking at the sort of different varieties of populism and the way they adapt to local circumstances. And this is why I'm hesitant to buy into the sort of Bolsonaro as Brazilian Trump or Duterte as Filipino Trump. I think that they're reacting in very different ways to, um, well, ways with some similarities, but with very striking differences. What, what about the, the trade war question in China? Does, does the outcome in the United States strengthen Trump's hand or, or Xi Jinping's hand? Um, I'm happy to take that question because that means that Leslie has to answer the white women's I think the um, – I mean, Peter and I, we talked about this beforehand. Um, I think China's watching this race really closely because um, they had targeted their retaliatory tit-for-tat tariffs in key congressional districts in order to try and sway um, the voters there to, um, you know, to basically put pressure on their representatives um, to say, listen, trade war is no good for anyone. And so the very, very targeted um, focus of Chinese tariff shows, they were interested in this because, remember, trade is a delegated power from Congress. And even if it wasn't, having uh, pressure being put on, uh, you know, the president, the executive branch from the legislative branch is a big part of how China was trying to make sure that what they were doing in response would try to lead to a better outcome. I think there's a sense that they were waiting until after the midterms to see the results, um, to see actually um, what, what had happened. So I'm not entirely sure that this result where the Democrats take the House and as you, you know, as we've already discussed, it's not really a check on the president. Maybe partially, um, I think that I'm not. I don't think that it is a clear signal to China about which way they ought to read the evolving trade um, situation, because the results were not decisive really either way. So, I think 
I personally think it actually strengthens President Trump's hand a bit, only because he's going to go after the issue harder. Mm -hmm. And he may, as we discussed earlier, be able to get this issue with some bipartisan support behind it. And I think that would worry um, China a bit. But I think the next phase, the next part of the question is the next phase of the China-U.S. trade war. I think, uh, remember, President Trump is running for re-election next year. So... um, There's a lot of things to figure into this. So one is he said if there's no trade deal with China, he's going to put a tariff, 10, 25 percent, on all Chinese imports into the United States. That's half a trillion dollars. Um, That's 3 percent of world trade. That is a massive bite. Will it have an economic impact? Will it have an economic impact at a time when U.S. growth is likely to be tapering, as in slowing down, because U.S. growth probably peaked in the second quarter of this year at 4.2% annualized in the back of a half in a trillion, one and a half trillion dollar fiscal stimulus in the first quarter. So all the estimates are that going to 2019, um, the economy is going to lose a little steam. Interest rates are probably going to go up a bit more. So is he really, during a time when he needs to remember, voters care about the economy, um, he's going to be, I think that's going to check him a little bit. Um, and I have no doubt that by the time he really runs for re-election, the U.S.-China trade war, he's going to declare victory. Yeah. I predict that with utter confidence. Whatever he's been given. <laughs> right. Yeah. Soundest prediction of the night. Okay. <laughs> so, Gender. So, yeah, so Trump and women, we, we only have 20 minutes. Um, <laughs> Fair, Peter. <laughs> Trump and women, but first a, a quick comment on the prior conversation. I just wanted to pick up on, you know, America voted to check Trump, and what does it mean for the rest of the pop? Can we just to remind ourselves that not everybody reads this election that way? In fact, I got a, a desperate email from a mutual colleague of ours in Washington who said, please tell me that I'm not wrong, and actually this was not bad for the Democrats, because everybody in my Washington bubble, this, this colleague of ours said, is reading this as a massive, you know, in exactly the the other way. So you, not everybody's reading this as, mm-hmm. as America voted to check Trump. They're saying this always happens in the midterms. I was asked this on Radio 5 Live. President Trump said this in his um, 430 press conference. He went through the great victories that they've had, the Republicans have had in the Senate relative to other midterm elections. So this election will be read in multiple ways, and I suspect that those other populists around the world won't see it as a huge setback for Donald Trump because they're listening to Donald Trump. Um, But nonetheless, I I, I guess I would push back. I completely agree with your claim about, you know, you can't do the moral equivalency argument with Trump. However, the world has very different expectations of the United States than it has of the leaders of China, Iran, you get on the list. And so I think it does matter that this president has walked back America's rhetorical commitments and, in fact, many of its real commitments to the human rights framework that it backed, for better or worse, um, over the course of the last 70 years. Uh, But on the women's question, so I don't think I have all the data, but we do know 53 percent of white women voted for Donald Trump in 2016. And I think we know, Peter knows better, 59 percent of women, not white women, voted Republican, sorry, voted Democrat, in this election, which is 20% greater than we saw vote um, Republican in this election. So it's not quite clear what that means about white women in this election. I don't think we have that data point yet, do we? So what we know is that white educated women voted Democratic in this election. In this election. In a, in a, in a big way. You have that breakdown? Uh, More than not, just the not at the tip of my okay. fingers, but um, 
Chris might have it right okay. there. Um, so white and, college educated and, and non-college educated white women broke in the and broke for Trump and the and the Republicans. So and that's different from twenty six. And in, right, and it's different. But I mean, I think this is kind of like a secular trend, and it's just it got goosed in this election. I mean, I can say one thing about why in twenty sixteen. First of all, you know, people have multiple identities. You don't have to vote your gender, and sometimes. You might feel pulled to vote your gender, but there are other things that you pull you further, like being evangelical, being Christian, being committed to a certain understanding of the appropriate role of government with respect to the economy and society, or wanting to vote for somebody who isn't associated with being fully vested in an elitist Washington that you cannot get access to. Right? Hillary Clinton was seen as completely an insider to the Washington elitist bubble, A, and B, she did not have the charisma to, to carry large audiences. So, you know, I think there were some very specific things about 2016, and I can't, I'm not sure I can say much about 2018 yet. Okay, so we got a bunch of other hands here. How about over there, the woman over in the brown sweater, maybe? Yeah. <laughs> I'll come back over um, to Linda's point, if Trump decides to focus his attention outward to foreign policy, trade, um, of course it's impossible to read an unpredictable person's mind, but what do you think specifically could be on his agenda in the next two years to achieve? Trump's agenda in the next two years. <clears throat> um, how about uh, this fellow right up here? Yeah. <clears throat> Um, the Democrats have won the popular vote in the last um, six out of seven presidentials. That's a lot, lot better than they did in the 1980s in the era of um, the elder Bush and Reagan. Um, it's often put forward that there might be structural reasons for that, you know, for example, um, race demographics. Um, but are there any other reasons? And if there are, are they likely to gain steam in the next 20 years to the extent that the Democrats have quite a rosy outlook? I'm definitely talking beyond 2020 here. Okay. And um, how about the woman right down here? Uh, yes. Yeah, you. Hi. Obviously, I'm an American, so this was and from Wisconsin, so that was a pretty cool uh, race. Um, I'm, <laughs> um, I'm a Democrat, obviously. So um, I'm from in the Masters of Strategic Communication program, but my undergrad was in political science. So um, one of the things that I've noticed as I went through the Obama years in college and stuff like that is that the Republican Party kind of kind of had its own civil war, and they kind of split, split into different you know, factions. You had, like, the Tea Party, and then you had the more moderate ones that are now have, now with Trump in power, have been essentially kind of shoved out. And um, now we're, we kind of also were seeing some of this kind of splintering in the Democratic Party, which you guys have already talked about, you know, with the more progressive uh, um, wing of the party um, kind of fighting with the more... A moderate, you know, like with Hillary Clinton and the Bernie Sanders fighting during the, you know, uh, primary. So I was wondering if this splintering, this um, this fighting within the Democratic Party between these two wings was kind of brought more to the forefront because of the increasing um, conservatism on the on the right side. 
Okay. Does so that, do, do you understand what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, 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 good. yeah. Good. Okay, so we've got three questions here. Um, you should answer one. Well, Come on, Peter. I'll, I'll, You're the I'll, expert. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll take a, a stab in a second. Go, uh, should I do the first yeah, one? Go ahead. Um, Trump's agenda in the next two years, um, I'm going to give you a caveat first, which is um, what I say is only valid until Trump's next tweet. (laughs) (laughs) This is information to date, and I'm not on Twitter at the moment. So (laughs) I think he will want to cater to his voting base in the next two years. Re-election will be foremost on his mind. The overwhelming, I think, if you can try and characterize him in any way is that he wants to be the one who has made America great again by um, reducing the unfair ways in which America has been treated um, in the past. So he's going to focus on trade. That is a big issue. I still remember um, when he won in 2016, I was speaking on a panel like this and um, you know, right before the election, and someone said, oh, and I was talking about trade, and they said, oh, don't worry, no one cares about trade. President Trump's not going to focus on trade. First day in office, he said, I'm going to pull out of the TPP. I don't want to go forward with that. Why? Because it matters to his voting base. America has had real stagnant median wages for 40 years, and they attribute it to globalization. Most of it is technology. It really matters to his base. He's going to focus on immigration, another area where he feels that America gets a raw deal. America um, does have a very large proportion of immigrants. It is the country of immigrants, but he views the practices of immigration policy to be part of why America has been taking in so many immigrants. It's part of the rhetoric. He's also going to focus, I think, on allies paying their fair share. So NATO is really an example of where he thinks America takes on too big a burden of what um, the costs of uh, of, uh, you know, of security. So, for instance, um, headline today is that Germany is going to run a budget surplus of about a trillion euros. Um, he's not going to like that. So <laughs> he's going to look at that and say, pay your, yeah, pay your fair share. So I think these are the, the areas he's, he wants to focus on, and these are the areas with a um, possibly a, um, a Congress that isn't going to work with him. These are the areas that he can focus on. And I'm sure Gideon can mention other things about foreign policy, but in terms of these areas, I think this is, this is going to be um, what he wants to take into his re-election. Can I have a crack at the third question? Uh, first of all, because uh, I was very glad to see Scott Walker go. Um, <laughs> you know, as, as someone who works in the university sector and belongs to a union, I had an incredible sense of uh, solidarity with people in Wisconsin. On that question, I think, first of all... Um, the party that's out of power is just always less unified than, uh, than the party that's in power. This is a pattern that we see again and again and again. I think that in many ways the ideological divisions within the Democratic Party, though, are actually a bit deeper than the ones in the Republican Party. If you remember the uh, 2016 election, there was a lot of talk about oh, all of these different lanes of the Republican Party. There's the evangelical lane, there's the national security lane, there's the, uh, there's the Tea Party lane, there's the libertarian lane, and it turned out Trump was the most popular in all of them. Um, these turned out to really be 
matters of emphasis rather than uh, serious ideological division. I think there's more serious ideological division in the Democratic Party about whether it's going to be a social democratic party or whether it's going to be a more neoliberal um, style party. I think that I want to push back a little bit on something that Peter said about the sort of dangers of Democrats going too far to the left. I think one of the things that we've seen is that after eight years of Republicans calling everything socialist, of using socialist as a code word for black, of using socialist to refer to basically any leader of any other country, when they're confronted with actual socialists, they don't even have the vocabulary to respond to it. (laughs) Um, I think we also need to make the point that Bernie Sanders, if he was in the British context... I don't think he'd even be as left as Corbyn. He would be a sort, he'd be a more sort of Ed Miliband type um, uh, Labor figure. Um, you know, he's he's not a socialist. He calls himself one, but he is he's more of a sort of uh, social democrat. And I actually don't think that that's as terrifying to Americans as it used to be. Even if it gets the label socialist put on it, the Cold War ended a long time ago. Um, now, and in the same way that Russians don't terrify people anymore, um, nor nor does socialism. Um, so I think that we, you know, it is even though the uh, the sort of neoliberal wing often appears a lot stronger. I think there's going to be an incredibly fierce battle over this uh, over the next two years. Peter, you should do the second one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the the popular vote and uh, and demographic change. I mean, I I think what you were suggesting, yeah, if you take the long view, what's happening inside the United States is it's changing and it's it's becoming less white. And as that happens, states like Texas will change. They will become increasingly purple. And I think we probably saw a harbinger of that in this election, even though he came up short. Um, I think there's something else, though, you know, that your question raises that I think is very troubling, and that is that this is going to be another election where the Democrats won the popular vote. They're going to, right now it looks like, um, depending on where you look, I mean, it's about, they have about an 8.5% edge in the popular vote. Just, by the way, by historical standards in the United States, that's a wave election, so, I mean, it's a very substantial uh, margin. It eclipses all of the recent so-called wave uh, elections. But because the country is so deeply polarized, it's not manifesting itself in quite the same way as a sweep where there's just there are fewer and fewer swing districts in a sense. I mean, the Democrats were really helped a lot in this election because there were many, many open seats that proved to be, you know, quite, quite competitive. But I, I, so there's a kind of disjuncture between who's winning the popular vote and, you know, I mean, you've got Trump lost the popular vote, got the presidency, you know, in 2016, George W. Bush, same kind of thing happened. You know, we're, we're seeing maybe in a sense gains in terms of seats that are not kind of equivalent to the actual popular vote 
that the Democrats won, and that's because they do very, very well in deeply urban areas. And I, so I think it doesn't com- completely translate. But I think, yeah, if you take the long view, things are, are changing, and I think that's the way a lot of Republican leaders look at it, that what they need to do is lock in gains now, and that's what the Supreme Court fights are all about, is taking advantage of the leverage that they have right now, and these people are going to be somebody like Brett Kavanaugh, if his health holds up, is going to be there for a long time. Um, we are close to the bewitching hour. I thought maybe I would give our panelists uh, 30 seconds each. We would just kind of run down the line here. Final thoughts. David? Um, I've been up since 2.30 this morning. <laughs> I woke okay, that's up it. thought, don't, don't check Twitter, don't check Twitter, don't check Twitter. Twitter was having a meltdown because of early returns from the South. So I'm going to cede the rest of my time to the rest of the panel because my brain uh, isn't functioning anymore. That's a smart move. Um, Linda? Um, I think um, this is a terrific... Terrific event. Your attendance engagement actually represents how important um, American politics are at the moment. We haven't talked a lot about um, the impact on uh, us here in Britain, but I think the attention really shows that um, we need to focus on what's happening in the United States. So my final thought is President Trump has ordered an audit of all the countries that have trade surpluses with America, you know, now, we're, we're, pretty, we're on that list. <laughs> so we haven't talked about the impact for Brexit, but I'm just saying, just think, Trump wants things to be more level and fair, and in his view, um, having a trade surplus with America means you're, you're not playing, you're not playing uh, by the rules. So um, there's a lot more, I think, to come in this story. Yeah. I mean, actually, the, the British ambassador to Washington, I once heard him say that conveniently our figures show that we have a trade surplus with America, but their figures show they have a trade surplus with us. <laughs> so they just, don't, they just don't want to compare figures. But, um, but I, I do think that uh, the relationship between Brexit Britain and Trump's America is a very interesting thing because when the two events happened, they were naturally paired by Trump himself, actually. I remember seeing him campaign in Florida and say to a very baffled audience, there's going to be a whole lot of Brexit going on here in a couple of weeks. I'm like, what? But, uh, so he, he saw it. But, um, but the way in which the May government has interpreted Brexit and there has been very different from the more kind of radical Trumpist populist view of it. And the Brits still say, oh, we're upholders of the international rules-based order and all the stuff that Trump appears to be assaulting. Uh, So I think Britain is left in a very peculiar position. Mm. We're we're leaving the European Union, but we can't really fully align ourselves with Trump's America, and I don't see us doing that. Um, So we're kind of floating off in an odd space. (laughs) (laughs) I'm supposed to go after that? Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I guess one of, I guess I would close with just saying, you know, it's very, it's very hard, and we've seen this, you know, if we look at ethnic conflicts and political mobilization of identity as a line of division in many places around the world, it's easier to create than it is to walk back from. And so my very deep concern is how do you walk it back? Uh, that's, the, that's the scary part. That's the, the kind of concern. But the positive story is the tremendous voter turnout. People are passionate. People are engaged. People are 
mobilized, um, and that and that's actually a tremendously positive story, especially the youth voter turnout. And so I'm not, I'm actually not pessimistic about. I'm pessimistic about the short term, but not about the medium and long term. That's good. We're going with the glass half full. (laughs) So, look, I want to thank everybody for um, coming here tonight. This is we've we've run out of time, and I would like to ask you to join me in thanking the panelists for a terrific round.